The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. I tried to put my um, finger in some ways on what I want to um, explain to you in this sermon, and I've struggled a bit to find it, but I'm trying to recall memories, and I'm remembering, and maybe you can identify with a similar story, being around, I think it's around fourth grade where we introduce um, a beautiful new genre of literature um, to human beings. Um, and I don't know quite how to define the genre. It's in the kind of where the red fern grows. Um, I can only say it's where your dog dies um, <laughs> genre. The other books are like Old Yeller. What, what, what else? There have to be other books because I remember reading like six my dog died books, all in the same. Am I the only one that remember? We're laughing because it's true, right? Um, and I remember sitting, I had one of these teachers in fourth grade who needed everyone to be okay. Anybody have a friend like that? Um, that just, they need you to be okay. And I remember we'd finished the book and she instantly wanted to turn it into a Hallmark movie. Right? And there was no, t- like, his dog is dead. Like, the dog is just dead. And you leave finishing these books, like um, your, your soul is weary, right? Especially those of us that are dog people, right? I could read Cat Die's book all the time and I wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't phase me a bit. I would not just keep moving. Wouldn't even, wouldn't even slow me down, the Cat Die's genre. Um, I know, some of you are cat people. I'm just being honest. I'm telling you who I am. So I know you're hurt and you're offended, and I'm just telling you. I'm allergic, so that's my excuse. Um, But I I wonder from time to time if it doesn't feel like there's a version of Christianity that feels a bit like my fourth grade teacher, um, that, that just needs you always to be okay. And so you come into any space and any place in life, and you need a full smile. All teeth sparkling, right? And life needs to be sorted. So even where there's pain, it needs to be put into perspective very quickly. And the reality is, right, I've learned a a few things on my journey, and I've learned there are certain groups of Christians I can't lean in and settle with, and some of this is that kind of smiley, that's not a very good official term either, Smiley Christianity and Dog Dies Literary Genre. I'm not really nailing my categories today, but I'm hoping you get this sense of what I'm talking about. And in that, um, I also find, um, and I remember in my Christian experience, also never feeling settled with uh, a group of Christians that, that um, love to articulate who they were through protest. I don't know if you've ever been a part of a Christian protest. Um, I... I've only re- literally once in my life, I, I was, again, this, well, this is probably sixth, seventh grade, and my church put on a protest. Uh, I don't know, really, I don't know if it was just a, a unique person in the church that thought we should do this, but they gathered mostly 13 and 14-year-olds, and we protested pornography outside the 7-Eleven. I'm quite confident uh, that the main thing we did was advertise the fact that that 7-Eleven was selling pornography. And... Maybe we increase the sales of pornography um, by protesting, right? And I've never, I've really learned, and I have friends 
uh, on a conservative end and a liberal end that, um, that tend to find great joy in protest. And, I, and without a doubt, there are times in history that protest has been affected. The civil rights movement is one of them. But generally speaking, it's so much easier um, to try to stand against something than it is to stand for something. And I've learned that I, I'm just much better at trying to move towards a solution and action rather than being able to state as loud as I can uh, what I may or may not be against. And that quite often in those moments of protest, uh, that we actually may be doing great harm. I, I say all of that to say um, that in church history, we're in this series, we're looking at people and uh, ideas from church history that impact who we are as a church. And it, it really, um, it, both in all the message we've had that Sean's gotten to share, that I've gotten to share, I, they're really important in understanding a bit of who we are uh, as Ecclesia and as a long and historical church. And I just encourage you, if you've missed any, to go back in the podcast. I think they'll be helpful for you. But today, um, I want to look at a figure that I misunderstood until I read probably a few biographies. I thought he was just the ultimate protester, a guy named Martin Luther. So Martin Luther, again, was born in 1483, and I just find a unique joy in the fact that today, I really believe some of the writings and teachings of a guy born in 1483 are going to make a difference for you. I, I don't want to overstate or oversell a sermon because it may be the simplest sermon I've ever preached, but I really believe what I'm going to talk to you about today is Martin Luther's theology of the cross, and, um, and it could be easily overlooked in Martin Luther's life. I literally think for many of us that have been Christians, and you know you're a Christian, but you're just there, and you feel to me like uh, if you've got a lock like this in your house, we have one up here at Elder that's, I mean, at uh, Westside that's like this. You put the key in, the key fits, but it just, you've got to jiggle it for a while, until you catch it, right? And for me, this theology of the cross is one of those moments that for many of us, like I know I'm a Christian, but I just hadn't been able to click the key quite yet. That Luther's theology of the cross really helps you go, oh, I, I see what it is to be Christian in a way that can be really profound. This guy from 1483, died in 1546, actually has some remarkable things to teach us uh, about uh, the theology of the cross and what it means uniquely to be a faithful Christian. One of the reasons it's surprising also is that um, not only Luther seemed like a protester because he was primarily known for what? Right, nailing the theses against the church door in Wittenberg, right? And, um, and in every way, they were a protest. They were saying, this is what's wrong. And um, now part of what Luther was good at at some points in his life was really being courageous and helping lead towards something uh, that actually did fit. He wasn't just critiquing the Catholic Church, but it's even more fascinating to look at Luther as a human being. And there are great biographies. Uh, there's really a pretty good film. Uh, most of these films don't turn out very good, but there's a pretty good film on Luther's life as well. And you get this sense of a person who is really, for much, much of his life, deeply troubled. He was filled with a lot of anxiety. He started his uh, faithful Christian journey out of extreme crisis. He was in a storm that he thought he was going to die. He'd been thrown from a horse, and he prayed to, I think it was St. Anne was his family's saint, um, that if he survived, he would become a monk. And he survived, <laughs> and he became a monk. And um, he went uh, into this monastery as a monk and literally started driving people crazy. 
Um, he was obsessive about his spirituality. He had tremendous anxiety, and I would just say overall, he was deathly afraid of God. And if you're deathly afraid of God, becoming a monk is probably a really bad idea in some ways, right? You're gonna spend all your time focusing on this one that you're afraid of? And it created a level of anxiety within him that was unparalleled. Um, he, he was known for um, doing what felt like day-long confessions. Hour after hour after hour, he would finish a confession, he would go back, he would remember something he didn't confess, and he would go back and confess it again. Right? This is one of the reasons that you can go, man, I'm glad I'm not Catholic, right? That I have to keep, like it's so hard to keep up with. Um, with all of your sin, and there was this sense of like, he could never, never keep up enough. Uh, in fact, in, among the, uh, the other monks, they, they called him, a, I don't really understand the term, but they called him a gold bricker. They, they said essentially, um, he was faking all of this piety, uh, these long confessions, just to avoid doing the work that other monks would do. Um, he was so troubled by all of it, he was so afraid of God's judgment and God's wrath that he lived with extreme digestive issues. Um, he just literally, he couldn't deal with the anxiety and physically, most of you know when you have anxiety, right? It's, it's evident in your stomach, you, you feel it. He just, he was in a place that he was a mess. And in fact, the, the, the priest that was charged with hearing his confession finally became so frustrated with him that he said, you're not coming back to confession until you actually sin well enough to deserve a confession. So he suggested to him, you might want to kill your father or something, um, which was really pointed because uh, Luther had great struggles with his relationship with his father. Uh, even, even in this, right, he didn't find comfort. And some of the monks that were overseeing him decided that the better course for Luther uh, was to be separated from the other uh, monks and uh, was placed in the tower for the purpose of studying the scriptures alone. Um, they said in part they put him there because it was the right place to be away and to study, and it was also very near to the toilet, quite literally. Um, and that's the place in life he found himself. And, and this is what happened. I'm giving you a really poor summary, but, but take it for what it is. Um, Luther starts to study the scriptures, the letters of Paul, Romans, the Gospels. And finally, he comes to this clear idea, and this is what gives birth to what we're gonna talk about today in Luther's Theology of the Cross. And it changed him from being a man that was filled with anxiety and fear of God to a man of great faith and courage. And essentially, his big idea was this, that the justice that God demands, which was severe, right? The righteousness was extreme. That the justice that God demands, he also provides that when he realized that Christ actually provided the righteousness that was required through his sacrificial death, when he really started to understand the fullness of the gospel that's articulated in Romans, whew, he could breathe. All of a sudden he went, wow, this is a beautiful story. And much of the Reformation was launched by the fact that he realized that so many of his uh, brothers and sisters seeking faith didn't understand even the most basic part of the gospel, that this thing that was required of them had actually been provided through Christ, that this was really good news. And there was this kind of sense of like, nobody knows this. No one, everybody else is filled with anxiety like I am. And so Luther began a journey of uh, trying to live out the faith and transform the church in a way that's truly meaningful. 
And in these uh, Heidelberg uh, letters and lectures that were presented, he articulates fully uh, what I think is the source of much of his theology, good theology. Um, There's plenty with Luther, like every person in church history and every person in this room that was deeply and profoundly broken. You'll find writings of Luther that are very anti-Semitic. They're disgusting. They're hard to read. They're painful to look at. I'm quite sure that in heaven, um, Luther's come to realize, man, I was so broken in so many ways. Uh, I think we will, many of us, come in similar ways. Uh, But his contributions are also really significant uh, and important. So that's what we're going to look at today, the theology of the cross. Let me try to give you a quick summary uh, of what I think that looks like. Then I'm going to give you just a few things that typify uh, this theology of the cross. There'll be things you can lean in on, and then some things that I think Um, we can do in light of these uh, really simple truths. Part of what Luther was saying is that most people live, and the church at that time, and I would say in large part the church in our day, thrives on a theology of glory. And he would describe glory not in a good way, but in a bad way. He would talk about a theology of glory was a theology of power. It was a theology of strength. It said that it's really our strength uh, that was most, uh, most important, that things like certainty, in our world. I know it and I've figured it out. And Luther introduces a theology that feels totally different. What Luther says is that that the scriptures teach us this beautiful sense of paradox. In 1 Corinthians 1.25, this is part of what introduced Luther to his understanding of the theology of the cross. It tells us that you you can count on this. God's foolishness will always be wiser than mere human wisdom. And God's weakness will always be stronger than mere human strength. Luther hit on something that I I just hear it for a minute today, Ecclesia, and see if the key starts to click. That the only way we could be victorious, that Christ could be victorious in our lives and in the world is through death and weakness. And maybe what Luther is suggesting, and he's not just maybe, ultimately saying it is, that for all of us, the only way to truly experience glory is first to go through suffering, pain, and weakness. That the greatness of God is not about his omnipotence and his power. He has all the power, all the magnificence. He's omnipresent. He could do anything that he wants, and yet the only way to truly rescue and save the world would be through embracing weakness and suffering and pain, and that through that could come a victory that would be radically different. So Luther said this has implications everywhere, where we would think, right, that a theology of glory says certainty is really important. You want to know things, you want to be Bible smart. Anybody here grow up being really Bible smart? And you could, anybody win any sword contest? You could flip to the place in the Bible faster than anybody else in the room, right? Right, good, Wayne, well done, Wayne. (laughs) Prepared you well. You could win, you could win those contests, right? You could memorize the most Bible verses, but that being Bible smart won't actually get you anywhere because the Bible, he says, is filled, it's with paradox, great truth. The great truth of God is a paradox. It's not one that our eight-pound brains can fully even comprehend, that we submit ourselves to it instead. The theology of glory feels a bit as well like like an 80s Bobby McFerrin song, right? That no matter what's going on, don't worry, be happy, right? And this kind of trite theology um, is painful when we're living real lives 
Right? So, for instance, I'm trying to think of examples that don't hit too close to home, but close enough home to feel it. Um, even in um, articulating things that we, I can tell you 100% are true, right? So um, I love the, the phrase and expression and the biblical truth that, um, that God is good all the time. Right? And yet, if you were to articulate that to a parent of a child who's been lost, right? You would be articulating a theology of glory that is not helpful to that parent in that time and place. The theology of glory tries to explain things away. And I gotta tell you, Ecclesia, even, even in the recent weeks as we've walked with parents that have lost children, even adult children, it, it's so unnatural. Part of what I, I tell people when we're going through this kind of grief, right, is that um, I wasn't gonna make this about grief, but I'll go ahead and tell you what I was gonna say. That all of us are prepared, right? Most of us that get married, half of us will lose a spouse. Um, most of us that have siblings, the more siblings we have, the more likely we are to lose a sibling. We expect at some point to bury our parents, but it is so unnatural for a parent to lose a child. It's just the most unnatural. And so it's, it feels almost impossible to metabolize that kind of grief. So for parents, it literally is like, um, like a whale that's ingested plastic, right? It doesn't have a way to digest it. It's impossible. You just hold it as best you can. And I gotta tell you, Ecclesia, when I stand with parents and I hear people come and say things like, heaven wanted them more, right? It just, it turns something within me because there is no resolving that kind of loss, right? And a theology of the cross invites us instead to be present with one another in the midst of suffering and to see that any glory we experience will come the same way it came through Christ. It will come first through suffering, through pain, through sorrow, that if Jesus walked the Via Dolorosa, the road of suffering, then surely we would expect to walk it as well. The theology of the cross invites us to welcome doubt, that it's in those places of doubt and struggle and paradox that we find great joy. So let me give you just a few things that are distinctive of Luther's theology of the cross. Then I wanna to read to you from Philippians chapter two and invite you into a few places that I think you can respond. One of the challenges and the opportunities of the theology of the cross is that it invites us to embrace paradox. We would love to be a people that have a map and a system and a plan, right? Uh, in fact, much of Christianity, the way we try to form discipleship, would like to take you on a very linear journey. Anybody ever been to uh, churches adopt these discipleship programs that literally are, ba and I, I love everything about baseball, but they'll base it around baseball, right? And you go, in your spiritual journey, you need to go to first base, and then the second base, and then the third base, and then you come home, right? You just, like, they just run the bases, right? And yet, I watch most of you in your spiritual journey, and you look like, like you hit a single, and you get out to first base, and you start kind of stumbling around, and the next thing I know, you're out running around the outfield, and you kind of get lost in the dugout, and you go into the restroom, and then you're up eating a hot dog, and you've totally forgotten that second base even exists, right? At some point, you make it around, and you make it around the corner, and something good begins to happen, but it almost seems like it's never linear. You move forward, you take two steps forward, you take one step back. That this life of faith is ultimately, it's a paradox. Matthew 10 reminds us of this, right? Uh, the words of Jesus to say, to find your life, you must lose your life. 
Can you imagine? Now, you've heard it before, right? So you go, that's what Jesus said. But just imagine you're hearing Jesus talk for the first time and you're thinking, Jesus is about to tell you, you want to find your life? Let me tell you how to find your life, right? And what are you expecting Jesus to give you? Three steps to find your life, right? And Jesus says, you want to find your life? Lose it. Jesus, what are you talking about, right? And you have to live in that tension. It's a profound paradox. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, most of us now have studied that passage enough to know there's profound truth in it. But, but you must continue. We must continue to, to wrestle with it. Luther's, Luther's theology of the cross reminds us that there was no system for Christianity, that we had to be a people that embraced paradox. Second, and this is really important, Luther's theology of the cross tells us that the cross in and of itself is a revelation of God. So the cross doesn't just happen to be the tool of Jesus' execution. It's actually God's revelation. So that uh, what, what he's saying is uh, that it's through suffering, it's through our, I love the word, just, you, could wrestle, you could write this word down and just wrestle with it. It's called cruciformity. Right? It's us being shaped in the form of the cross that as we become shaped by the cross, right, it becomes a means of salvation for us. Right? Imagine it. Of all the ways God could rescue the world and express his love. And he rescues the world and expresses his love through the shape of the cross. Right? It's in so many ways mind-blowing. Thirdly, and I love this part of Luther's theology. The theology of the cross reminds us that you actually find God in the most unexpected places. He says sometimes you, you don't find God in the big cathedrals with all the pomp and circumstance. You, you don't find God in the places of power that you may find God on Montrose as you go down and you encounter some of our brothers and sisters who live on the streets, that, that you may find God in a hospital room as you're saying goodbye to a parent, that it's in these places of pain and suffering and you would think, that's not where, you, these should be the lonely, the dark places and yet it's in those places that we actually encounter God in a real way. I've, I've said it to you before but I believe it's true. We, you, you know this intuitively because you know that as you look at your life, the things that have shaped you have been the difficult things. None of us encounter new difficult things and go, hooray, I'm about to grow. This is gonna be awesome, right? <laughs> None of us do. But if, as we look backwards, nobody goes, you know what, I learned so much from that season that I ate chocolate cake every day. That was such a great season of learning in my life, right? I just, every day I woke up and I ate chocolate cake and I just learned so much about who I am in the world, right? It's, no, we say, it's in these seasons of, I was depressed, I was lost. I was struggling to breathe, right? You remember being at a time of such sorrow that you had to remind yourself, breathe, breathe, right? And it's in those places that I encountered God. Luther says the theology of the cross reminds us that we meet God in the unexpected places, not in the supposed religious places. And that's a gift. Lastly, Luther's theology of the cross, and it's a gift, 
Don't run to it too quickly. Don't try to figure it all out. But it does remind us that there is purpose in suffering. Now, you may not know what the purpose is, but in the midst of suffering, we can be assured that there are purposes in the midst of that suffering. In fact, part of what he articulates so beautifully is that if Christ would suffer, one of the main reasons, I finished the sentence first and then I'll tell you the story. That's when you know you're a pastor and you're getting ahead of yourself. You wanna do both at the same time. I'd like to communicate two things at once. He says that you know that, that, that if Christ was to suffer to come to glory, that surely, and I, I, I'm not telling any of you that you won't experience God's glory and beauty, that you won't experience power and comfort and rest. You will, but it will be on the other side of some kinds of suffering. That it will be as we come through and we endure whatever crosses that we must bear, like Christ, then we will find great glory. One of the main reasons that I, um, I love to take people to the Holy Land is, um, is what we do on Friday morning. We, we wake up early. Uh, again, we, I don't know any other groups that do this. I just intuitively, from the time that I spent uh, in Jerusalem in a time of grief with an Ecclesian, we brought an Ecclesian who lost his wife and we stayed in the old city of Jerusalem uh, for nine days. And every morning we intuitively just got up and we walked the Via Della Rosa very early in the morning before anyone's out. And so when I take groups now, we go, we get up at like 5.30 and everybody's telling me like, you're really gonna wake us up at 5.30? I'm like, really, you're gonna wake up at 5.30? And um, many of you are in the room that have done this with me. And, um, and at 5.30, we just walk the stations of Christ's suffering. And we there, there have been trips that I can't finish the scripture. I just began to weep as I imagine our Savior suffering for us so. Right? It's, it seems impossible to fathom that he would have such love for us that he would lay his, not only his life down, but that he would embrace such a difficult road. And it's in standing in that same ground, very close at least to where Jesus would have been, that we're reminded that if Jesus suffered, that surely we will suffer as well. And it leads us to this place where at least when we come back, at least when we endure suffering, we don't have to ask the why me question. We just know, I know that I will suffer. It's, will, will people be present with me? Will I walk through it with people who love me? Will I lean on God as I walk through it and come out the other end towards glory? Philippians 2 reminds us of this truth and I just wanna read this over you. It's just this beautiful reminder as Paul speaks and he tells us, if you find any comfort, it's always helpful to remember, Paul's writing this from prison, right? From a place of torment, a place of difficulty. If you find any comfort from being in the anointed, if his love brings you some encouragement, if you experience true companionship with the Spirit, his tenderness and mercy fill your heart, then brothers and sisters, here is one thing that would complete my joy. Come together as one and mind and spirit and purpose, sharing in the same love. You've heard so much about this in this series. This is who we're made to be, lean together. Don't let selfishness and, and prideful agendas take over. Embrace true humility and lift your heads to extend love to others. Get beyond yourselves and protecting your own interests, right? Be sincere, and he says, and secure your neighbor's interests first, 
Right? This is such a beautiful, simple truth, right? It feels a little bit like the, the safety announcement that you get on the plane, right? To, uh, to put the mask, the oxygen mask on the children before you put it on yourselves. I've thought recently about, there's this great song by Drew Holcomb. This wasn't in the sermon, but it's 11 and you're not on the clock, so I'm just going to tell you anyway. Um, it's talking about the end of the world, right? And he uses this phrase, I don't know where it originates, I should research it, but um, smoke them if you got them, right? It's the end of the world. So if you got them, smoke them, right? And as I hear those, I always think like, if you have one last thing to do, is smoking really the last thing you want to do, right? And I think like, what gives me most joy in the world? It is, it is in service to others that I find the most joy. If it's the end of the world, I'm just suggesting to you, the best thing you could do, the thing you want to go out with is serving someone else. That's what Paul said. Put the interest of others before yourself. And it's in that place, right? Continually we find like, this is who I'm made to be. I'm made to put others' interests before myself. And it's so ironic, right? It's a paradox that when we care for others, we're as happy as we will ever be. Um, it's, it's the paradox of the cross. He goes on and says, in other words, if I can explain it a different way, just adopt the mindset of Jesus. If you don't want to do all that stuff, just, just do what Jesus does. Live in his attitude, with his attitude in your hearts, and remember that though he was the form of God, fully God, he chose, to cling, he chose not to cling to equality with God, but he poured himself out to fill a vessel brand new, a servant in form and a man in deed. He humbled himself, obedient to death, a merciless death on the cross. That if Christ was fully God, embraced the cross, that surely we would as well. And he said, so because of the cross, he experienced glory. God raised him up to the highest place and gave him the name above all. So that when his name is called, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and below. And every tongue will confess Jesus, the anointed one, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? And that Paul says, and that Luther says, that's the good news. The good news is not that you won't suffer, but as you suffer, you know that you suffer with one who knows suffering, and that in your suffering, you will find purpose, and you will receive glory on the other side of it. I wish that I could look you straight in the eyes with a straight face and give you the smiley version of Christianity that just says, make lemonade out of your lemons, that it's all going to be okay. I wish I could believe it. I'm grateful to Luther that Luther's helped me understand that the path of Christ will involve suffering and pain. But that suffering and pain will not be what defines you. It won't be the end, but it will be a part of that journey. So what do we do in light of that? I just wanna give you three things and invite you into three uh, places to respond. The theology of the cross uh, leads us to a place where I think we must respond in a few ways. And and here's the first, um, that in life and in our theology, I wanna invite you not to rush to resolve the tension. Life is filled with paradox. It's filled with pain. And what we don't wanna do is be a people that try to push through too quickly to explain it away, to offer the meaning. Hey, don't worry, it'll be be okay because of blah, 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 right? Uh, In fact, this is one of the things uh, that pastors in the day that I was educated in seminary were taught to do in church, right? Uh, that sermons were supposed to allow you a little bit of tension, but you wanted to resolve it pretty quickly, right? So we would even take these great parables that Christ taught. Anybody remember how the disciples respond when Jesus taught a parable? 
huh? Right? They just, what? What? There's no place in the scripture that the disciples went, well, now we figured it out, right? So it's, it's, it's beyond funny almost that pastors were trained to take these parables that confound, and we would essentially say, well, what Jesus meant to say was these three points, right? As if, if Jesus was, he was God, but he just wasn't articulate enough to let you know <laughs> that this parable really means these three simple points, right? And we, and we want to move to resolution when the reality is, you don't need resolution. You're saying, my, my life at home is a mess. I don't know what to do with my child. I don't know what to do with our finances. I don't feel resolute, and it's in that place of tension, right? A good sermon, I don't know if I'll preach one this year, but if, if I do, what it should do is leave you with some sense of tension that keeps you thinking, praying, and returning to the scriptures. It's saying, I need to think more about that. I need to pray more about that. What does it look like for me to engage the cross in a meaningful way? Um, life is filled with tension. You will find some resolution, right? I'd encourage you, even as you think about this, listen to more jazz, right? Just allow right, that tension not to be resolved so quickly. Pop music just, it's just gonna resolve, right? It's gotta resolve fast. And in jazz, you just have to sit. Say, I'm, oh, they're not there yet, are they? They're not, oh. Anybody else? Do, it's, just, it's a gift, right? Embrace it, it's a, it's a map in some ways for life. Secondly, I'll try to state this two ways and you can see which one resonates most with you. In light of the theology of the cross, I would invite you to reimagine your strengths. Or you could, I could say it this way, or to lead with your weakness. What if your strengths aren't your strength? What if your strengths are your weakness? If God chooses to save us through weakness, if Paul reminds us that when we are weak, he is strong, is it possible that your weaknesses are really your greatest asset? Or put another way, relationally, if you will lead with your weakness, it's possible you might find greater friendship and community. I've told you this before, but I don't believe that great friendships are formed out of strengths. I don't believe that any of us see another person and go, I've been watching you and I've noticed that you are awesome and I am also awesome. We should be awesome together as friends, right? that it's quite the opposite, that some of you say, hey, Pastor Chris, like when you talk about the fact that you can't, like, and it's, I'll just be honest, if I go to a Mexican restaurant, I either eat all the queso or I eat no queso. I don't have an in-between. There's not an off switch, right? And it's, it's not a great gift. My pants don't currently fit that well because of it, right? And and yet, I, I, I don't know, I, I don't have another path, right? But most of you will go, well, you know what? We should be friends because I struggle with the same thing, right? I'm in the same, and we could go down the list. And none of you are going to go, like, I really, you know, he talks about what a great husband he is, and I want to be a great husband, so I want to be friends with him. You know? No, he talks about how he's struggling because he wants to be a good husband, but he's not. And I can relate to that. Everybody understand what we're 
And it's in those places, if we will decide, the theology of the cross reminds us to lead with our weakness. That if you'll acknowledge your weakness and you'll um, share it, that together God will reshape us in some really beautiful ways. My friend Thad Cockrell uh, released a little EP with just some beautiful music and he wrote this, I need to find out, um, he, either he's dating someone or he channeled something to write a beautiful love song. Um, the song Susie from the West Coast. If you got Spotify, you should listen to it on the way home. And he's just got one lyric in it. They're apparently having a long distance relationship from what I can tell from the song. Again, that's my friend. I should call him and ask. But um, this is what he says. He says, the strengths, you know, they're gonna divide us. The weaknesses are gonna keep us close. And I hear that song and I go, yeah, that's, that's onto something. It's in the places we're both weak We'll rely on it. It's our strengths. They're going to lead us away from each other. But in our weaknesses, we're going to get drawn together. Last one, and this is the hardest one, so I shouldn't even just articulate it as if it's something to do. But I want to invite you into the pain and the tension of it. Um, what we all need to learn to do um, is to learn to sit in pain. Both our own pain and the pain of others. Um, it's really hard to sit with others' pain because we will go to great lengths not to sit with our own pain. We will medicate it. We will avoid it. We will distract ourselves. We will do just about anything we can do to not sit with our own pain. So it shouldn't surprise us that when others are in pain, we would struggle just to sit and be present with them. There's not a lot that I appreciate about Hurricane Harvey. Um, Stephen Brown came to our staff because of Hurricane Harvey. We had a few things that good that happened. Um, but you know what, we, um, we learn to sit with people in their pain. There's not a time that any of us walked into the home of somebody that was devastated and just say, we're gonna fix this, it's all gonna be okay, right? We couldn't, we just would go, those photos will never be replaced. I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And we cried with people, right? And we, we laid it out, we tried to dry it out, we tried to do what we could, but we just had to sit. Um, I can tell you, that as much as I thought no one would know the pain that we endured uh, this week as I correspond with, talk on the phone with a uh, pastor of a beloved church, a church we're very close to in, uh, in the Bahamas, a New Providence Community Church, I've, I've realized that our pain was like, I can't, I can't fathom the pain that they're walking through now. We don't know what the death toll is going to be, but the word that I'm hearing from the church on the ground, it just, just based on their relationships and the number of deaths and missing, it's just, it's significant. One of the things that I loved was that people from all across the world were willing to sit with us in our pain. Um, they were willing to do what you should do with people that grieve and are suffering, and they mostly just said, hey, can we help buy the food, right? We released a Harvey report a few weeks ago that you really should pull up and it tells you a lot about what we did. And in those days after the storm, we just, we tried to feed people. Um, about $280,000 that went out in HEB gift cards just as we tried to fill the pantries of pantries that were empty. There's a lot of that to do immediately in the Bahamas. As we come to the table, I'm gonna invite you to stand with brothers and sisters um, there. They're literally, the need is more significant than what we saw. Um, in Nassau, they currently have thousands and thousands of people. It will end up being tens of thousands and many more that are coming from these devastated islands where there is no infrastructure. 
Um, many of them are leaving behind family that has not been located, but they, need, they, they have to get to someplace safe. So the church is trying to feed them and house them, and it's one of those places that we can help. So we're going to put the baskets out as we come to communion. All of that will go to our friends. I'm going to say the name of the church and the pastor again, in part because I just want you to hear it and be able to pray for them this week. It's New Providence Community Church. Matthew Sweeting is the pastor, and um, they're a great church. Um, Lisa and the kids and I spent a number of summers there, and we got to serve as kind of a guest pastor in the summer. I know a lot of people in the church, and they're, they're going to be serving really faithfully, but they have a difficult and hard road. I'm grateful um, that Luther reminds us um, that the cross is the path to glory. There is no other path to glory, but I'm praying that we and many others would be present with them in the midst of their suffering. Would you give me a moment just to pray over you, allow a few of these things to sink in uniquely for you? And in that place, we'll prepare to come to the table. Lord God, I thank you for my brothers and sisters. I thank you for a church that allows me and allows each of us to lead with our weaknesses and not to pretend that we have different strengths than we have. God, we are grateful that we're in community with you and with one another, that we have a chance to learn and to grow. And we pray today, God, that you would help us to live well in that tension, that you'd help us to lead with our weaknesses, that you'd lead us to sit with others in pain. Lord, right now, we just um, we stand with our brothers and sisters at New Providence Community Church and other churches in the Bahamas, that are worshiping now. Many of them are coming to take communion in the same timing that we're coming to take communion. And we pray that they would find peace and comfort in the midst of great loss. And we pray, Lord, that the story of Christ and Christ's suffering would be for us a healing balm today. We ask you today to bless this bread. We pray as well, Lord, that you would bless this cup, this cup that reminds us that like Luther, we don't have to um, go back to confession over and over again. It reminds us that our good works are not what matters, that the justice, the righteousness that God requires, he also provides through Christ. And Lord, we believe that that is the greatest gift that could ever be gifted to us. We pray all of this together as a family, and we pray it in your name. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.